turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. What a treat we have for you on the Michelle Tafoya podcast today. Ed Morrissey of Hot Air. He is the managing editor, joined Hot Air in 2008. He fills in for Hugh Hewitt. You may be familiar with him there on the Salem Radio Network. Uh, He knows a lot and he's really fun. Stay tuned. Now, it's the Michelle Tafoya podcast. I'm really excited. I'm going to meet this person for the first time. It's always so fun on this podcast to to bring in people that I've never met before, but I'm a fan of because of their work. And Ed Morrissey is one of those people. I like to read people's Twitter backgrounds too, because it kind of gives you an idea of what you're getting into. He, he writes, your favorite sweet summer child, undisputed grandmaster of the Sistine selfie, because there is a picture of him in the Sistine Chapel there, managing editor, hot air, and author of Going Red. He is bright, smart, wise, interesting, and we have a lot in common, uh, but we're going to talk about everything from the Durham report that just came out that everyone's trying to tell you is a nothing burger to academia to the presidential election that is coming up and who we think are the front runners. They may not be who you think they are. So stick around for that. But in the meantime, I want to tell you about my favorite skincare product, which is Genucel. Um, if you're tired of looking tired like I am, then Genucel Skincare is an amazing antioxidant skincare company uh, that is made and manufactured right here in the USA, antioxidant based, I should say. And it's formulated by a pharmacist, really high quality ingredients. I think one of my favorites is the deep firming serum with stem cell, stem cell technology. So I'll, I'll just wash my face, put this stuff on and immediately I see this like more radiant version of myself. Now, right now, save over 70% off Genucel's most popular package just in time for the warm months that are coming ahead here in the spring and summer. That features Genucel's Ultra Retinol that contains a powerful retinol alternative. It's safe on your skin, even in the summer months. And Genucel's Dark Spot Corrector for some of those dark spots we get from spending too much time in the sun. Plus, you'll still get Genucel's Classic Under Eye Bags Therapy. You know, those bags that we all get under our eyes. Yeah, they'll take care of that puffiness. And with its immediate effects, see results in as little as 12 hours or get your money back. What do you have to lose? Don't wait. Visit genucel.com slash Michelle. That's G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash Michelle with one L. Save over 70% off their most popular package. Plus every order subscription includes a luxury gift box with two free springtime essentials. That's two free gifts plus free concierge shipping for a limited time. Go to genucel.com slash Michelle, G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash Michelle. Up next, Ed Morrissey. Ed, you and I briefly chatted before the camera started rolling that you've got eh, maybe four or five hours worth of things to say about the Durham report. We'll try to limit it here to 25 minutes or so, but I am curious because we're living in two worlds here. There's one side that sees the Durham report the way that I see it. Now, maybe I'm the crazy one. And then there's the other side that says this is a big, quote unquote, nothing burger. 
What are you saying? I, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm a little bit in both worlds here, and, and I'll explain why, because you're not crazy and neither am I. This was okay. a huge, huge, huge scandal. This is worse than Watergate. You've got the FBI uh, conspiring with the existing administration to to basically pass off a dirty trick as some sort of crime, uh, uh, you know, for from the opponent of the administration's favorite candidate and going with that for years without acknowledging that they knew that this was nothing more than a campaign dirty trick. <clears throat> I mean, I think that that's just absolutely unconscionable and um, everybody involved really should be prosecuted. That's where I think the nothing burger comes in because while John Durham wrote a really great report, Michelle, uh, very detailed, very meticulous. In the end, nothing's going to happen. And Durham had the authority to try to make things happen. Maybe there just wasn't a statute to cover this. But I don't see any way in which this disincentivizes the exact same thing from happening in uh, similar circumstances. Which is what's so terrifying about it and frustrating for the public when they find out that People were unethical, that they were immoral, that they did something wrong, but there's no statute to cover that, so we can't really try them. And the two people that Durham did try, I guess there were three. One is serving time. The other two were acquitted. So one of the things early on in the report, it says, some individuals who, in our view, had important and relevant information about the topics under investigation refused to be interviewed or otherwise cooperate with the office. So... There were people who could have had in, uh, information that didn't have to comply. Do you understand why that is? Because I don't. I'm not exactly sure why, uh, unless they were relying on their Fifth Amendment um, uh, right to you know, prevent self-incrimination. In other words, they were part of it and didn't want to reveal that. Um, Durham had subpoena authority. He, I mean, he had prosecutorial authority. He could right. have taken them to court. Uh, chose not to. You're right, though. He we got one conviction in a case that was really made by Michael Horowitz a couple of years prior to that against Kevin Kleinsmith, who was the FBI attorney that uh, lied about evidence to the FISA court in order to get the um, uh, surveillance on Carter Page. The surveillance, right. which turned out to be absolutely completely unjustified. Yeah. Um, and I met Carter Page a couple times, and Carter Page is, you know, understandably very angry about this, um, as uh, as people really should um, understand. But the 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 upshot of this, all of this, is that he tried to prosecute a couple of process crimes in Washington D.C. and failed for whatever reason, failed to make the case. Whether it's the jury pool, whether it's uh, a, a flaw in the prosecution, whether it was actually not a crime, as the defenders of these two people say, um, and we're left with the same incentives that were in place before. In fact, I, I would argue that we're left with the reinforced incentives of politicization and abuse of uh, office because. Nothing happened to these people. I mean, Andrew McCabe got fired. Peter right. Strzok got fired. Then they signed multi-million dollar contracts with, you know, media organizations. And uh, yeah, that's a real disincentive, right? Which there. again calls those media organizations into question for hiring people who were fired from the FBI uh, because they clearly these media organizations are taking sides in this thing. And it's it's oh yeah that it's it's so distressing to me. And I think people are so angry about this. Um, again, I'll go to another page that, that I read here. The law does not always make a person's bad judgment 
even horribly bad judgment, standing alone a crime, nor does the law criminalize all unseemly or unethical conduct conduct that political campaigns might undertake for tactical advantage, absence of violation of a particular federal criminal statute. As you said, there might not be statute to cover these things. Can Congress step in here and say, all right, there's no statute, but we can do something about this? Yeah, I think that's what the House Oversight Committee is trying to do right now with the Durham report. I think what they're looking at this is they're looking at what statutes can we craft so that we can set up these disincentives for, uh, you know, for, for the next time that this that this happens. But, you know, the media's complicity in the Durham report really doesn't start with Durham. It doesn't even really start with um, the 2016 campaign. James Clapper flat out lied to Congress about yes. about spying on American citizens through the um, uh, through the covert um, NSA programs and ended up a CNN, I believe CNN um, yes. talking head paid a, a handsome amount of money to speak about intelligence matters. This is a guy who lied, lied to, to Congress, Congress committed yeah. perjury. <laughs> And then, uh, and, and by the way, that's not just Republicans talking about that. Ron Wyden, who's a a pretty far left Democrat senator, was furious over Clapper's lies and wanted him prosecuted for perjury. Um, I mean, and yet he's he's got the cushy gig. He still has the cushy gig on CNN. It's it's embarrassing to me. It's it's an embarrassing as an American to think that these things can go on, go unpunished, and in fact go rewarded and. You know, just again, I'm just detailing these things that I've read early in the report, determining whether or not you could charge someone. It's a tricky thing. We saw it. We saw it with uh, Comey and Hillary Clinton when he came out and said she did some really stupid, irresponsible, egregiously irresponsible, reckless things with her server. But no one's going to prosecute this. So we're not going to, you know, we're not going to refer it for charges. I think we're in similar territory here. The decision of whether to bring criminal charges in any given matter thus is a complicated one that is neither entirely subjective nor mechanistic. If this report and the outcome of the special counsel's investigation leave some with the impression that injustices or misconduct have gone unaddressed, it's not because the office concluded that no such injustices or misconduct occurred. It is rather because... Not every injustice or transgression amounts to a criminal offense, and criminal prosecutors are tasked exclusively with investigating and prosecuting violations of U.S. criminal laws. Can, can the laws be changed in this regard? I mean, Christopher Ray is now saying, well, look, if this happened today in the FBI, well, A, it wouldn't happen, or there are things in place that would prevent this from happening again. Do you buy that? Not at all. Not at all. And I mean, you can take a look in the report, by the way, to find that out, because he says, I mean, this is not a failure of policy. This is a failure to follow policy. Yeah, uh, this is not a failure of of some sort of gap in the in the safety net that that prevents the politicization of the FBI. This was a willful disregarding of the safety nets that were already in place yeah. because the 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 top echelon of the FBI took sides in an election. Yeah. And you, there's I mean, there's really no way that you can craft a statute around that except to take a look at some of the, the specific overt acts that took place. But the to your point, though, there's also a portion of this uh, Durham report that talks about the fact that the FBI had evidence that the Clinton uh, campaign was accepting foreign contributions. 
And they never bothered to investigate it. They never bothered to probe it. Uh, there was another part of that where, you know, the Clinton intelligence plan, they knew about the Clinton intelligence plan, which was the plan to create a, a ruse about Donald Trump colluding with Russia um, uh, and the DNC server hack as a means of distracting people, and this is explicitly, as a means to distract people from the scandal surrounding her emails um, and the fact that she had hid emails from Congress for over uh, for four years as Secretary yeah. of State, allowing the allowing the State Department to represent in court that Hillary Clinton didn't have emails. That's a that's a that's perjury on multiple occasions. Um, and so this, besides the fact of all the classified material mishandling that went um, that took place in this, so I mean, there's all sorts of different things that you can glean from this, which shows that. The issue isn't so much the rules. The issue is how the rules are being applied, applied. And, and and the fact that they're applied to one side and not the other. And this is a very, it, very clear case of that. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is, it's really interesting. This is worse than Watergate, they said about Trump. Well, I think this is worse than Watergate, this Durham yeah. report. Um so if people need a little gentle reminder, Crossfire Hurricane was the name of this investigation uh, into the, the Trump campaign. And and I just and we all remember the name of Peter Strzok um, struck at a minimum, had pronounced hostile feelings toward Trump at a minimum. Right. So you've got someone in the FBI who can't stand Trump. The matter was opened as a full investigation without ever having spoken to the persons who provided the information. We're talking about, you know, someone heard in an Australian pub that Trump was involved in a with a whatever. And and they just jumped on it. They jumped on it. They didn't do any digging before they just opened this thing up and went full blown into this investigation. They wanted something. They supplied themselves with something. They lied about it to the FISA court and away we went. And, and it just, it's to call that a nothing burger just because you can't prosecute people is, again, it's embarrassing and it's frustrating. And I wonder where you think we go from here. I'm not sure. I mean, I think that if you had a properly constituted Congress, if you had a properly situated, um, you know, federal government with checks and balances, you'd open up another church commission, right? Uh, this is what took place in the in the 1970s after all of the different FBI abuses started coming to light. I mean, this is not the first time the FBI has been in the cross in the crosshairs, right? I mean, the whole Hoover thing took place yeah. in the 1970s, and I was a teenager when this was going on, but I followed it because I thought it was fascinating. I had grown up on you know, the usual kid, kid books about the FBI and they caught Alvin Karpis and all this kind of fun yeah. stuff. And then you find out, oh, they were doing a hell of a lot more than just ca- catching Alvin Karpis at that time. Um, and supposedly the whole process of that was to depoliticize the FBI, to depoliticize, by the way, also the CIA and other, other uh, agencies and to return confidence in institutions that uh, that meant that they were aimed at the, you know, a broad, uh, the broad good of the American public, not a yeah. partisan good, not partisan aims. I mean, there is no way to read this Durham report or the Horowitz report that preceded it. That was four years ago without coming to the conclusion that the people who are running these agencies are, are partisans who are there to do partisan work. And it doesn't matter who's actually in the Oval Office at the time, that there is a, a bureaucratic um, 
uh, I, I'm trying to think of the right word here, but basically that the left has won the bureaucratic turf war. I don't think anybody's going to be shocked to hear that, no. but that it's now expressing itself at the highest echelons of the bureaucracy and people are abusing that power for partisan ends. And that's exactly what Crossfire Hurricane was. It's exactly why Hillary Clinton didn't get prosecuted yeah. over the classified material um, thing or investigate, even investigated for accepting foreign contributions at the same time that she's, you know, throwing out this um, uh, steel dossier that she herself paid for and created. So there's a, there's a big picture here, uh, something I want to get into with you, because as you said, the left has won this war in politicizing these agencies. It seems like the left has won the war in politicizing academia. The left oh, has yeah. won the war in politicizing the media. <clears throat> Uh, Hollywood, these major institutions, I would even go so far as to say when I go to church on Sundays, sometimes I hear some very left-leaning messages out of the pulpit. And I'm not going to reveal where I go to church, but I, I, I sit there and I kind of go, huh. So why? How have they become, how have all of these institutions become so one-sided and what is the right doing wrong not to, not to be able yeah. to balance this out? Well, I think it started in academia, and then I think it branched outward from there. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, I think that the the, the right um, conservatives really lost focus on academia because they probably felt forty or fifty years ago that it was a bubble that didn't really have a lot of impact anyplace else. That people really once you know uh, there's a there's a time and a place for everything, and you know flirting with communism when you're in college is the time and the place. And you get mm -hmm. out in the real world, you you realize, oh, that's a stupid idea. Socialism doesn't work. And you, and you learn your lesson. And I think to a certain extent that used to be true. And it used to be that universities would offer a very broad um, set of viewpoints, right? Mm -hmm. Marxism being one of them, of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I, was, I was in college in the early 1980s. Um, well, at least nominally. I, I mean, I was there. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure how much I actually did. Um, and uh, neither was neither were my universities, which is the reason why I was eventually uh, I, I departed without anybody being too sad to see me go. But um, <laughs> but I mean, I got a, I got a really nice range of viewpoints. I got conservative viewpoints. I got Marxist viewpoints. I got all the stuff in between. Um, but that's not the case anymore. And I was just got done talking to an author. His name's Stanley Ridgely, who wrote a book called Brutal Minds. And he really talks about something that I've seen over the decades, which is that we have stopped the university, academia has stopped being about education. It's really turned into a progressive cult with actual cult techniques to brainwash people who are coming through there. It's no longer about education. It's about brainwashing and indoctrination. And so that whole process of getting out of college and going into the real world is becoming a lot more difficult for people who come through that because it's so baked into their psychology after mm. they exit that they're not able to learn hard lessons about real life realities. And, and this is part of this whole idea that you can remake the world simply by declaring your own version of reality. I mean, this is yes. all part and parcel of the same, same movement, but it started in academia and academia fed into media. Um, you know, I'm sure you know Bernie Goldberg. I'm sure you've had a chance yes. to talk with Bernie a lot. Bernie's a great guy, by the way, yeah. and um, has been very helpful in my career. And uh, he wrote the seminal book on this, Bias. And at the time, Bernie was saying, this is um, this is an unintentional bias. It's an editorial bias. It's just coming from people who don't 
who who aren't malicious. This is just their viewpoint and can't see past their own viewpoint. Well, I think I was talking with him or he was on a podcast maybe a year or two ago where he said, you know, I don't think that that holds anymore. I don't think that my, uh, you know, my theory in bias holds anymore because I think this is very intentional. And uh-huh. I think that this is something that is uh, calculated and is uh, and is uh, almost impermeable to criticism and and uh, argument. That it's really scary, and I think I think again, I keep and I know this is a something that people keep repeating and beating the drum on this, but it starts before college. Now we all know that yeah. it starts in grammar school for crying out loud, and I see that here in the public school system in Minnesota. Uh, and other and private schools in Minnesota, I see it. And what I find, what I think happened during the pandemic is a lot of parents kind of went, "Oh, they were at home with their kids. They were learning a lot more about what the kids were hearing and seeing and reading in school." And thought, "Huh, you know, it's um." And anecdotally, a friend of mine runs a small business here in Minnesota and was interviewing applications recently and was talking to people about a potential job. And one of the big questions from these potential young candidates coming out of college was, so what do you, what is your activism? And he told them, you know, well, we are in the fishing industry. So we were, we like conservation, but we're not really, you know, doing much beyond that. What, what do you mean exactly? Well, what do, what are you active in? I mean, what do you, what social causes? Well, you know, we're a fishing firm, so we don't really get into social causes. And and this was the response. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah. So these young people are feeling righteous in this cause as well. And as though anyone who doesn't participate, who just wants to have a money-making endeavor, even if the profit margins are not huge, they get, you know, sort of looked down upon and patronized as though you just aren't enlightened and I don't really want to work for you. I wouldn't want that person to work for me anyway, but this is, this is how it's sort of permeating the rest of, of society. Right. Exactly. I mean, and you're right. It it starts in kindergarten. Now there's a story out, I think it was yesterday or the day before uh, about a a teacher who's um, who was uh, pushing a book in class. And I think it was in middle school that had to do with, you know, um, LGBTQ, things, gay sex, it had some pornographic elements to it. Um, and uh, parents actually called the police on her. And so the school district removed her and she ended up resigning. And she's saying, I did nothing wrong. You know, this is this was uh, a, a way to educate kids on social action. And it's like, <laughs> you don't need to educate middle schoolers on social action. And this is part of the problem, right? They're not educating kids to make their own decisions. They're indoctrinating kids yeah. in and creating the, the the next generation of people manning the ramparts in the streets when they should really be educating children to be the next generation of people who are improving society through through um, through commerce, through uh, through I would call it organic social engagement. Um, and I mean, I don't think. I don't think at 12 years old, I needed to be instructed on social action. As an adult, I, I could make my own decisions on social yeah. action. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, that, that to me is, that to me is really an indicator of where public education and to some extent, private education, because some of the private schools are not much better about this. They're using the same curricula. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that's, it's, in what I say, Michelle, is 
that it's an example of adults exploiting children um, to um, to validate their own choices rather than educating children so that those children can grow up and make their own choices. It's so well said. And in the meantime, and you know from having lived in both California and Minnesota, as I have, that in the meantime, while we're teaching them all that stuff well before they need to be, and and by the way, I don't, I don't want my teachers teaching my kid that stuff. The kids will figure it out along the way. I certainly right. did. Um, but meanwhile, reading and civics and math scores are abysmally low, and it's it's. To me, this is criminal. We are, these are particularly in the public schools. These are taxpayer funded schools, government schools, as some people like to call them now, that do receive some federal funding. And, and this is what the emphasis is. I, you know, look, I'm all for when kids come into school, they learn to respect one another, be kind to one another, um, and not hurt one another, all of those things to be inclusive. But this idea that, you know, we're going to not do math because it's racist and we're going to lower the reading bar because we don't think all of you can clear it. it it's it's criminal to me. I, I, I don't know. Am I going too far? <laughs> no, I mean, it should be criminal. I mean, again, it's one of those things where I think that if you're if you are exploiting children for your own political or sexual purposes uh, or cultural purposes, then you shouldn't be in education. And uh, I mean, while people probably read that story and say, why would the parents call the police rather than the school board? That seems like an overreaction. <laughs> I mean, parents just don't have much other choice these days, except to call the police uh, uh, in these circumstances, because nothing else gets done. You saw what happened when um, uh, parents in Virginia, yes. uh, you know, revolted against the um, critical race theory and DEI uh, curricula that was in place. Parents went to school board meetings, which is really the town hall model of democracy. It's the yes. core model of democracy. And the Department of Justice called them domestic terrorists for showing up and complaining about these things. They were going to run this whole, uh, you know, domestic terrorism operation against them. And parents uh, ended up uh, ousting Democrats from the governor's seat. Glenn yep. Youngkin ends up winning on that. Yes. Uh, even though Virginia is really a very blue state, especially in the area where the, you know, Loudoun County is not, <laughs> Loudoun County is hardly uh, West Virginia. It's hardly yeah. a, a bastion of conservative thought. And yet uh, Loudoun and Fairfax is where, uh, where these um, revolts were taking place. And I think that that's what it's going to take. I, I, I agree with you. And I think when it comes to your kids, that's where your ire really gets fired up about these yeah. issues and where you're willing to say, you know what? I don't the the I, I and it, this is kind of funny, but the name of the other guy, the Democrat candidate for governor that year, is escaping me, even though he was an incumbent. Right? It was Terry uh, McAuliffe. He Terry was, McAuliffe. He had, thank he you. He had been elected once other, one other time. They can't run consecutively. Oh, so he wasn't. So he was a previously a governor and yes. then coming back to run for another term. And and when he said parents shouldn't be involved in their ki kids' education, I thought. Oh, the, you've just done it, sir. You've yeah. just done it. And he did. And people started saying, okay, so who is this Glenn Youngkin guy? And and I think Glenn Youngkin is a pretty reasonable fellow. And I think that that, that may continue. I saw a teacher recently on a show, it may have been again on CNN, say, when once parents drop their kids off at school, they are no longer in charge of their kids, basically what yep. she said. And I thought, well... You may have just lost your job because you cannot tell because I can walk in anytime I want 
and yank my kid out of your classroom. I am in charge. This is my child. This is not your child. And I don't care how much teachers say they, quote, love their students. They don't love them the way that the people who birthed them, meaning the moms, not the birthing people. Yes, thank you. They they don't love them as much (laughs) as we do. Or in my case, with my second child, who adopted her, who traveled half the globe to go get my daughter, bring her home and raise her in the way that I see fit and love her. They they have none of that background. So for them to say they love their kids and they're going to make sure... I'm there. I have my limits as to what that school teacher should be teaching my kids. And, and frankly, I want them to be taught to read, to write, to spell correctly, to use proper grammar, to do math, to do science, and then throw in some music and phys ed and some art maybe. And we're good to go. I, I don't need this other stuff. And the fact that it's crept in and crept in and crept in is really alarming to me. Well, it is to me too. And I I think that this is of a piece. What you're talking about is of a piece of this uh, neo-Marxist, cultural Marxism, whatever, however you want to phrase it. But it's basically a Marxist ideal of breaking down the nuclear family and making the students the property of the state rather than property of the parents. And uh, this is this is an ongoing battle, um, and it's been going on for for decades. I mean, it's just gotten worse and worse and worse as we've gone along. But that attitude of well, the parents don't have any say over their kids' education. That didn't just start in 2021. That didn't just start in 2020. That started a long time ago. And I think that the pandemic um, was a crucible. Yeah. It because. It forced parents to look at what was going on in the classroom because they were forced to be home with their with their with their children on these Zoom sessions or whatever other you know remote um, software platforms that they used, and they got a chance to see what was happening in the classrooms, and the parents were aghast at some of the um, indoctrination that was taking place. Yeah. Uh, but but this is part of that effort to break down the nuclear family to make children the wards of the state. This is the whole, it takes a village to raise a child uh, philosophy. No, it doesn't. It takes two parents to do it well. Sometimes it it only takes one, uh, but it's a lot easier if there are two, a father and a mother. And uh, and that is the, you take a look at the data, that is absolutely the best way to to prepare a child for success is a two parapher. Yeah, the, the data is consistent on that and on fatherless homes. Boy, we've really run the gamut here from starting with the <laughs> the Durham report to ending up at two-parent homes. But before I let you go, Ed, and I certainly hope you'll come back here because I, I love talking to you. Uh, but before we go, we've got this. We're underway. The The campaign for 2024 is, is underway, right? Um, we know Trump is running. We know Biden is running. We know that RFK is running. And we know that uh, Marianne Williams is running. Uh, we, we've got Nikki Haley with her hat officially in the ring, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, the businessman, and we're waiting on um, whether or not Tim Scott's going to go beyond his his exploratory campaign, uh, and we're waiting on Ron DeSantis. Here's what I talk to uh, with my centrist friends about, and I have many uh, independent, uh, I have friends from all walks of 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 life. And we, we talk about this and the overarching uh, conclusion we come to is this is the United States of America, arguably the greatest country on earth. And we've got Trump and Biden running against each other. These are the favorites in the parties. We've got a doddering old man in Biden who, who I was watching him today, put these medals of valor on people in the, the 
ribbons were all twisted and he couldn't do that correctly. And then we've got Trump and we all know what baggage he brings. So no matter what you think about their policies, we've got these two not real great examples of America in 2023, 24. What's going what do you, is this where we're going to wind up? Do you think this is the, the way this is going to go? Or do you think that Ron DeSantis, who is the second leading candidate on the Republican side, has a legitimate shot? I do. I think he has a legitimate shot. I think Trump has a legitimate shot of winning the nomination as well. I mean, he's pop, he's got a, he's got a, um, a base, a fairly large base within the Republican party, uh, that, that like him a lot. I do think, though, that we're taking a look at some of the polls that are transpiring before this fight even begins and forgetting that oftentimes a person who looks like the front runner going into a going into a nomination cycle ends up not winning the nomination because right. the actual campaign matters. And I think that there are a lot of people who are saying, oh, I like Trump, who may not be terribly emotionally connected to him any longer who may be struggling with the same questions you just raised, Michelle, which is that, you know, this guy's 78 or he's going to be 78 years old when uh, the general election rolls around. He's old. He's got too much baggage. It's mm-hmm. very likely that we're going to lose states that we could possibly win if he's at the top of the ticket. Right. And maybe it's maybe it's time for a change, especially if Biden's the other candidate. I don't know anybody in this country <laughs> except for maybe <laughs> Joe Biden, who is really anxious to see a rematch of the 2020 election. Joe Biden no. might be the only guy who is because yeah. it's the only argument he's got. Yeah. Yeah. They, it's the only argument he's got is I beat him once I can beat him again. And, but see now, Joe, you have a record as president to run on and it's a, an abysmal record. And so uh, I think, I think things change dramatically given what we've seen. I mean, this is the direction of the country has gone far worse than I ever expected after, after Biden stepped into the oval. I, I, I never thought it could sink this low. I never thought things could be this bad. And yet here we are. Um, that could push some people to say, forget it. I hated Trump, but I'm voting for him anyway. But it could also get, make a lot of people stay home. It's it's really, it's difficult to predict, um, but we're going to be watching it every step of the way. Ed Morrissey from Hot Air, it's just a pleasure to have you on. And I hope we can do it again because there's just so much to talk about. I, I look forward to the next time, Michelle. I had a blast. Thank you so much. Thank you. And everyone, thanks for listening. He is Ed Morrissey. You can find him at Hot Air and uh, everywhere, really. Just Google the guy. I mean, Don Lemon would tell you, just Google him. You know, that's how you how you find out everything these days. Just Google him. Uh, Don, I don't think I passed my prime quite yet. I'll just throw that in there. And as I say at the end of every episode, be brave and do good. Thanks for listening. 